Support for Talking Heart on WVIK comes from the people at Quad City Bank and Trust, helping the local community with their banking and financial needs for more than 20 years. Information is at qcbt.com. Support also comes from the estate of Margaret Skinner, a longtime friend of WVIK and lover of the arts. This is Carolyn Martin, and I'm talking art today with John Fazzanelli Coelty, a printmaker and artist whose solo exhibit, Atlas, is currently on display at the Muscatine Arts Center. Welcome, John. Thank you very much, Carolyn. Your exhibit contains over 40 prints and large-scale drawings. Why did you choose Atlas as the title for this exhibit? Atlas works in several different ways. I grew up with Greek mythology, so Atlas in Greek mythology is the god who holds up the world. But this show is dedicated to my caregiver and wife, Diane Calzaretta, who's my Atlas, and she holds up my world. That's just lovely, and she's your caregiver because, um, unfortunately, you're dealing with a medical diagnosis that it's affect, to some degree, your ability to create your art. Well, yeah, I'm in a wheelchair and power chair for the last five years due to a rare form of ALS. However, I feel very lucky because this particularly rare form is very gentle and slow, and so it's given me an opportunity to continue to work. The other um, symbolic part of the name Atlas, besides, of course, an homage to your your wife, caretaker, is, um, is, you know, an atlas is a collection of maps. And um, what's one thing that's really amazing about your exhibit is that you find yourself as a viewer um, navigating through, through these internal maps of yours. Um, you are charting uh, your course through somewhat unfamiliar terrain. Well, thank you. Yeah, I always loved maps and cartography, and I loved walking and hiking and so it gives me an opportunity to do a type of a transfer mentally that I can continue to have the same type of discussion with the world around me just from a chair now and now my footprints are imprinted on the paper and since it's the work that I always love doing it's no different than if I were still actually doing the walking, too. And we see references to that. We see literally feet. We see arms. We see body shapes uh, scattered throughout, interspersed between these, these geographic maps, if you will. Well, we sometimes need a little something to hang on to, objectively. And my work has gotten increasingly abstract to the point of even non-representation in the past decade. And at the same time, I feel very, very free to describe at least vaguely some of what is part of my condition. And so I figured I should use my feet and hands as being major players. Despite your diagnosis of ALS, amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, uh, you still have found a way to allow these creative impulses of yours to flourish, um, and you've become a skilled master of adaptation. So uh, how has your diagnosis modified how you create your works? Well, in a certain sense, I always had an idea that there was something odd 
inside where one is born with this condition and I was just lucky that it didn't manifest uh, until I was in my early 50s but there is a arena inside each of us where we may have suspicions and I was always the slowest one in my class and yet I ran track and cross country in college so I could discover how slow I really was and you have to be willing to deal with failure as an artist in order to really gain experience. If all we gain is success, life is very easy and gentle. And we're probably not going to move away from the TV screen very readily. But since life is not easy, I feel that there's no difference between having ALS and being an engraver in the 21st century. I'm a dinosaur. I have to be very thick-headed to want to do this kind of physical manual labor in a world dominated by digital technology. Let's create a visual walkthrough, if we can, um, for the listener, um, kind of walking through your current exhibit atlas. When you enter the Stanley Gallery, and, and this again is in the Muscatine Arts Center, on the left wall are a series of large-scale drawings, and your titles are a reflection of, of your current daily life, um, such as the Caretaker's Map. Well, yeah, the Caretaker's Map is a series of watercolor tracings of my wife's hands, and the rest of it, the sort of a globular landscape underneath it is me. And so it's very uh, both figurative and uh, playful because I want to recognize that she offers everything that is joyful and good and my landscape isn't necessarily so friendly. And yet I want to make these images be positive overall. And it's not a good discussion to go on the dark side. The disease really feeds on psychological unhappiness. And so my way of counteracting it is to make rather positive or even humorous sort of comments about it. You know, your humor definitely comes through. because, And it would be so hard to maintain that, I'm, I'm sure. There is one that, um, that made me laugh out loud. The title is called, You Caught Me With Your Pants Down which is hilarious, really. Well, most of us do wear clothes, but I can't pull my pants up in real life. So I don't, you can't possibly meet me today without catching me with my pants down. And obviously I cover up with a cummerbund. But at the same time, it's a very fun and playful and very large watercolor. And at the same time, what I'm saying is, I can do anything I want, and it's a lot of fun. There's another one I, I really love, the landscape in my head. And when you follow the lines in that, um, you, you kind of move back and forth. It, it, you kind of go on a circuitous route, um, which ultimately brings you back to, to the current place and time um, and reminds us that life is really unpredictable, and rarely do we take a straight path in life. I miss the landscape profoundly as a former walker, and I can't change that except inside my head. And so making a large landscape, which is really a self-portrait again, using notative imagery that reminds us at least vaguely of cartography is an opportunity for me to say, I'm still walking with you. 
and I'm employing my memory, and you wonder how, how, how fortunate one is to maintain one's mind in a disintegrating body landscape. Well, it has given me great liberation. I feel no ties to the images that I thought were so important as a younger bipedal creature. And age really gives us such a different perspective, doesn't it? Um, when you were just talking about how you felt somewhat liberated, um, despite the, the physical struggles, um, it made me think of another one of your prints called Footstool Sailing, which is really amazing. It's pencil and watercolor, and it's very dreamlike. Uh, you can imagine being in a healthier body, sailing away under, under blue skies, you get this sense of physical and psychological freedom, but you, you still have that psychological freedom. Well, thank you. Yeah, that's one of the, even tending towards more objective as a, as a self-portrait. And again, too, the perspective is rather looking up like below my knees. So it's not particularly uh, uh, discreet in some ways. And at the same time, I feel like I have the ability to mock my condition and as long as I can hold the tools and make marks on paper I plan to and I have lots of ideas and I'm not very smart and I'd feel like I'm uh, only uh, decent as an image maker and it's a good idea to keep me busy and out of the way in the corner making my images and so all of that seems to fit in and it's a really good way of discounting the circumstances. Because I think that generally, if one walks into that beautiful gallery and sees this, this exhibition, you're not necessarily thinking that the artist is going to be someone sitting in a power chair. Absolutely not. It, it, I would never have known um, had I not heard this story ahead of time. Um, when you're in that gallery, hanging on the opposite wall, on that right-hand side, is a sizable collection that, that seems very different in both technique and style. When was that body of work created? Well, that's my prints made at the same time. And so they have a conversation, I think, uh, back and forth across the room that I couldn't really predict or see from in my own studio. And the, so I, as an intaglio printmaker, I have a great passion to continue to work the, the copper plates with my tools in 15th century uh, processes. And some of the prints on the wall were even, were assisted by my wife and in the printing. And so the, the studio is on the back of the property, so it's very accessible except in the coldest weather and it's given me an opportunity to continue to be the, the student of my master. And your master was Mauricio Lasansky, the famous printmaker from the University of Iowa. Yeah, I was incredibly lucky to get a chance to study with him, as well as his staff, Virginia Myers and Keith Acapul. And the students were all smarter and better and more advanced, mature in their artistry than I was when I came there. And yet I spent seven years there and then 13 years in his private studio afterwards. It's, an, uh, it's a, uh, an unbelievable experience, and he's a huge figure in my life right this minute. And we are sitting right now in your front room, surrounded by some of his works, uh, and he really is amazing. You worked as his personal assistant for quite some time. What, 
were some of the biggest lessons that you learned from Mauricio Lasansky? There aren't any shortcuts, Carolyn. That was one of the biggest ones. And I think that he was living what he wanted to do. And getting an opportunity to watch someone that brilliant think and work is a very, very rare experience. And he was very, very determined and dedicated. And he was making physically demanding images seven feet tall when he was in his mid-80s. And there are very few people that want to do anything in their mid-80s. And he was making some of the most impressive work of his, of his uh, later years. And I was just very, very lucky to be there. I have seen some of his collages that you may be referring to that are extremely large um, that he did very late in his life. And it's how wonderful is that to remain so creative and really at the top of your game to the very, at the very end of your life. Yeah, I think one of the things, he was always so curious that he was always trying to create new approaches to things. And one of the pieces we worked on that he created had more than 80 pieces of metal inked that ran through the press once. Intaglio printmaking is so complex, and it's incredible that you're still able to do some of that. On the, on the flyer, your, the exhibition flyer for this show of yours, Atlas, um, on the cover of that is Morning, which you created. Uh, and it seems very reminiscent of a Picasso um, drawing uh, to me. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that and how you created it? Yeah, that's actually a mezzotint, which is 17th, early 17th century technology, where you employ a scimitar-shaped hand tool called a rocker that has tiny dots in the steel, and you create a network of millions and millions of dots depressed into the surface of the copper, and yet there is a space in between the dots, and you create the most velvety blacks that are imaginable. And this process was invented in the 17th century by a man named Van Siegen in order to try and break away from the linear tendencies of engraving. And so this was something where it became popular as a means of portraiture. And so I wanted to make an, a self-portrait about what life was like when I got out of bed. And this was when I was actually much more physically strong and could still get out of bed on my own. And so, uh, ironically, of course, I did not approach the technique in a traditional manner where you would rock the entire copper plate black first and then create the image by erasing. Instead, I created the design and liked it so much I wouldn't get rid of it, so I rocked around it which is very backwards. Well, there are these intersecting, very elliptical shapes, and it's, and it's beautiful. Um, and you described mezzotent. You, it, also, scraping and burnishing were listed as techniques. What, what are those exactly? Those are, in, those are how we erase. How you hide your sins, if you will. We can change everything. And Professor Myers taught me that you could sin your way to perdition and still find salvation while she was holding these tools. And the triangular scraper is an eraser. And as long as there's metal there, you can erase what you've, put, what you've done. It's a plastic medium. It is very, very malleable. 
but you have to be willing to do the work manually. Yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that because I would have thought that metal, once you s scrape into a scratch into it, create an impression that it would be permanent, but that's not the case. It's actually very much like what we do with the soil as a farmer. The tools that we use to engrave below the surface are, are burins and it cuts a trench below the surface and just like with the soil you might actually plow in a different place the next year and the weather might have changed the, 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 the trench and softened it back up that we could call the weather the scraper and here what we have is the ability to make the mark as well as to take it away or to change it and so I can go as far backwards as I can forward. Another one that of, of your works that I love, in fact, it's probably my favorite, is entitled Fireflies, which shows these vivid orange um, fireflies, which obscure a very vague outline of a figure. And it's, it's really lovely. And um, you created this by etching, engraving, gouging, scraping, and burnishing. And, and those you know, technique names are very physical. They almost sound violent. That copper plate I put into my old hydrochloric acid in the backyard and etched it for four days until it bit all the way through the metal. It broke through the acid-protecting ground, and I let it happen very accidentally. And this was all on top of having already made a huge portrait of my grandfather and with a lot of deep gouging and engraving. And he was a very big figure in my life. He was an immigrant like my teacher. And I was his first grandchild. And where did he immigrate from? He came from the Netherlands in 1919. And he came to Iowa because it was the promised land. And he was a dairy farmer and a traveling salesman for Watkins products. And I made this huge image of him, and then I, in a sense, wanted to say something about his passing. And so any kid who comes out of the big city like I did and gets to go back to Iowa and spend time with the grandparents who raised him as a child will remember what happens in June and dusk when all these beautiful little bugs come out of the ditches and rise up into the sky. And no city kid gets to see that. It really is magical. And I had no idea that if you're west, say, of the Rockies, there are no fireflies. So we are so lucky to have that here. You're so right. And I guess it's, in a way, it's so it's an homage both to the memory of this old man who's just a, a looming figure, our ghosts, our ancestors. They're in the sky there. They're, our, their spirits are there. And the fireflies just seemed like a nice metaphor for it. And, of course, in order to make them, I had to erase all those shapes. And that is really physical. One very unusual piece that you have in, in your current exhibit atlas is entitled The Poet and Her Poem. Can you tell us a little bit about that piece? That's by my daughter, Marina Calzaretta. And she's a writer and a poet. And I was just inspired by her writing. And she loves nature. And she loves going to the mountains. And she... It seems to me that she loves cold places, and I see a lot of adventure in her, and I think that that's just me putting her portrait there in kind of a crystalline kind of a space, and but inspired by our many trips to the mountains and various parts of the country. Well, she must really feel very honored to have had you create that, um, to create that. I'm just going to read part of what she wrote in her poem, Softly Step Upon the Crystal Stage, 
alone with the soul of an ancient age where nothing but the frost is left and a sleeping mountain's silent breath, uh, which, is just, which is just beautiful. Lying flat on a very long table close to the door when you walk in are six pieces collectively entitled Atlas Avant-Garde or Map Nouveau. And these are collages. When you look at those, you get a sense of the shifting world um, beneath us and, and around us. Um, and just a reminder again that things are not as they seem. And these seem different from your other work. These evolved out of a commission for the Stanley Foundation for Dick Stanley's uh, retirement. And I was commissioned by Keith Porter to make a print. And so I made a two foot by three foot engraving, which is not in the show because it was at the Moline Public Library at the time. But um, the idea behind the original engraving was that we see the world in a different way now. We must. And so I rearranged the seven continents and made stencils out of them to create my image, but all the continents were upside down and jumbled backwards because I think we have to see the world differently. So what happened for the Map Nouveau was that that evolved out of that original engraving. And so the four of those panels, beginning with an intaglio on the left, involve not seven anymore, but 14 continents because we're more complicated. It's Getting Crowded is one of the titles. And I can't imagine looking at the world the same way I did as a little boy when I experienced driving on Interstate 80 when it was first opened between the eastern third of the, of the state of Iowa. And my grandfather and I witnessed another car coming towards us on the other side of the highway. It was the only one we saw in 30 miles. Can you imagine getting on that expressway now? I can't. The world is changing in other, um, so many important ways. Yeah. So it's just, you know, really beautiful that you were able to create these works of art. And I didn't understand initially that they were continents. So that's so interesting. But yeah. when you look at them, you get a sense of the, the fragility of our environment, as well as a sense of physical fragility. And they're really all tied together. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's not possible to go and look at the world that I've inhabited for a short period of time and not notice how much dirtier it is on a clean day. In a big city, I start to see the influence of the city miles and miles before we get anywhere near it. And so we have made ourselves very, very crowded and we have not been minding the store when it comes to taking care of the natural uh, resources that we have and so I feel very very conscious that as a 15th century specialist quite a bit of the world that I'm living in is in extreme danger and you can't go to the mountains that I love so much without noticing how many dead trees there are and they're dead because the bark beetle thrives in extra warm conditions and so too much fire too much warmth in the air, it's not an accident that it's happening. We've got the foot on the accelerator. And so I look at that interstate and it's just packed, absolutely packed. And everything that comes out the tailpipe isn't good for us. And so my grandfather would be very disappointed as a dairy farmer 
to think that there is such a thing as a 10,000 head herd of dairy cows. Well, the world definitely is changing, and, and I think artists like you who make us think in a very deep, meaningful way about that, um, it, it's the first step that we need to, in order to take change. Uh, and certainly seeing those works, they're, they're very emotional, and I'm so glad that the Muscatine Art Center, um, or yourself, I'm not sure who decided the layout of the exhibit, but it's really nice that they're set aside, that they're on their own, that you see it, those six pieces as a unit. Well, thank you very much, but I give all credit to Melanie Alexander and her staff. They had total control over how they w were going to exhibit the show, and they bring a very high degree of professionalism to everything they do, and they're absolutely marvelous, and it's an amazing facility that wouldn't be there if it wasn't for very, very generous philanthropic people over many years, beginning with the, the Musser-Atkins uh, family. Describe, if you can, for people who may have not been to the Muscatine Arts Center, what it's like, because it's worth a road trip just, um, just to see that space. You know, you have an Edwardian mansion that is filled with uh, remarkable European paintings, as well as a glass collection, as well as uh, collections on uh, river themes and Native American themes, and a three-story modern edition with a ceramic studio and a children's uh, art area. It is a facility that offers a remarkable variety of things, as well as a top-notch professional exhibition areas. And so, but the collections themselves, I can go and see Picasso's and Rodin's, Matisse's, and Van Gogh's. Right here in Muscatine. It's really amazing. And then there's, from this Edwardian mansion that's so beautiful, there's a um, kind of connecting way that uh, extends back to a modern edition where your exhibit is being shown. Yeah, it's a, a marvelous combination of using a, a house that was built by a successful uh, merchant for his daughter and son-in-law. And at the same time, the all the modern capacity is there for education. And so they have a very, very rich collection and uh, it really, really shows off the community in a deep way and uh, in a very deep cultural way. Well, John, it's been so great to talk with you today. Your work and story are very inspiring, so thank you. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. Uh, I feel very lucky and very honored and I was so lucky to come to Iowa and study with Mr. Lasansky and be exposed to his great print department. And it's a marvelous part of the world that most people still just drive through or fly over. But this is, like my grandfather said, the promised land. True, and we know better, don't we? We sure do. And thank you so much. And thank you for all you do. John Fazzinelli Coelty's solo exhibit Atlas is currently on display at the Muscatine Arts Center. Originally opening in January, it is up through March 24th, so take the time to see it soon. The Muscatine Arts Center is free to the public. On Thursdays, they were open late until 7 p.m., and on Saturday and Sunday, they are open from 1 until 5 p.m. You can find parking instructions and other information online at muscatineartcenter.org. This has been Carolyn Martin, talking art in the Quad Cities for WVIK. Our theme music is provided by a Quad City legend, the late Ellis Cal. Thank you.